0: Welcome to the Yukon Internal Medicine podcast series. This is Alator Shujin, your host and a chief medical resident at the University of Connecticut Internal Medicine Residency. A quick disclaimer before we start. All opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely of the responsibility of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the Yukon Department of Medicine. The content presented is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as a medical advice. Today with me, I have one and only Dr. Deep Pachu, a graduate of our program, and one of the best nephrology fellows we had. We're losing him to the state of Massachusetts, unfortunately. As he's moving, he will be starting as a new nephrology attending at St. Vincent's Hospital in Worcester, Massachusetts. As sad as we are that he's leaving us, he agreed to record a few renal episodes for our residents, which we're very excited about. We were thinking of what nephrology topics to record together, and first topics that came to mind were renal tubular acidosis. Speaking from personal experience, no matter how many times I read about this, it never seems to make sense or stick. So I'm going to let Dr. Pachiu walk us through the renal tubular acidosis in a bit more detail.
1: Thank you for the kind introduction, Allah, and thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. I agree that RTAs are probably one of the major sticking points for a lot of med students and residents, including myself. But I think there's a lot of better ways to try to learn about them. So the first thing I want everyone to sort of pay attention to is what is an RTA in general? So basically, if you break apart the word renal tubular acidosis, it really just means any tubular dysfunction in the kidney that leads to an acidosis. So one major aspect there is, what about a patient with an AKI? If you have a really bad ATN, you're going to have a lot of tubular dysfunction, and hence you're going to have acidosis. And I'm sure many of you have seen that on the clinical wards and on questions. And so the first point is, if you have a patient with a really bad AKI, I wouldn't go down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out whether the patient has an acidosis from an RTA versus an AKI. Fix the AKI, and oftentimes the acidosis will improve. A corollary to that is that it's very difficult to make a diagnosis of any type of RTA in a patient who's also got a concurrent severe AKI. So in terms of the RTAs themselves, I think the easiest way to learn them is really to know where they occur in the kidney, what that part of the kidney does in normal physiology, and that makes the pathology in terms of the RTA much easier to understand. So we'll start with the proximal RTA. The proximal tubule in the kidney really has one major role, and that is reabsorb everything. So if you think about it, about 3,500 milliequivalents of bicarbonate are filtered by the glomerulus every single day. 98 to 99% of that bicarb is reabsorbed mostly by the proximal tubule. So any type of issue that causes an impairment in reabsorption of that bicarb would lead to bicarb losses and hence some degree of acidosis. So, when you're thinking about a proximal RTA, basically simplify it down to the fact that you cannot reabsorb the bicarb that you're filtering. How does this happen? So, either you can have an isolated bicarbonate losses, meaning that you are blocking reabsorption of bicarb alone and the rest of the proximal tubule is functioning just fine. This is in the scenario of, like, for example, if someone taking something like acetazolamide. If you take acetazolamide, you block carbonic anhydrase, and that enzyme is required for you to be able to reabsorb bicarb. Another common question on the boards is someone taking something like topiramate, which can be used for migraines and seizures. It has the secondary effect that it also inhibits carbonic anhydrase. So you end up having sort of a side effect, which leads to an RTA. Other diseases are something like the entire proximal tubule shutting down. Another common term for that is Fanconi syndrome. And in that case, you would lose a lot of bicarb, phosphorus, and all the other amino acids and things that the proximal tubule were to reabsorb. Causes of Fanconi syndrome can be something like myeloma. So if if your proximal tubule is picking up a heavy protein burden, that can lead to proximal tubular cell shutdown or heavy metal poisoning, for example, lead poisoning. So in all these scenarios, the reason you're developing the acidosis is because the proximal tubule isn't able to pick up as much bicarb as it needs to. But the one thing to keep in mind is reabsorbing bicarb has nothing nothing to do with actually acidifying the urine. The urine acidification happens distally, and we'll talk about that in a second when we get to the second part. And so in these patients, one of the ways that we often describe proximal RTAs is the fact that their urine pH will be still acidic. And I want to make sure that you know there's a caveat to that. Their urine pH will be acidic as long as the bicarb in their blood is lower than or equal to how much the proximal tubule can absorb. For example, if a patient has the ability to reabsorb only 17 milliequivalents of liter of bicarb, as long as their serum bicarb level stays at 17 or less, they're reabsorbing all of it. If you give this person bicarb, which we typically do when we're trying to treat these patients, you're going to bring their serum bicarb up above that, and anything higher than that 17 is going to end up in the urine and make your urine pH go up. And so that caveat in terms of these patients having their ability to still acidify their urine only makes sense or only happens when their serum bicarb is at or below the level that their proximal tubule is now able to reabsorb.
0: I know you're describing it in terms of proximal versus distal, but they also have numbers associated with them. Would you mind just quickly running this through so the residents can put the two together?
1: Absolutely. So, the, the numbering system for the RTAs is really on based on how they were developed or discovered. So the first one was a distal RTA. So distal RTAs are type 1. Then was discovered a proximal RTA. So proximal RTAs are type 2 RTAs. There was a temporary period of time where they thought that there was a type 3 RTA. Really all type 3 RTA was was a patient who had both proximal and distal RTAs. This was essentially non-compatible with life. These patients died at birth or shortly after birth. So we don't see them as an adult that was a type 3, and then type 4 RTAs are considered hyperkalemic RTAs, which we'll talk about a little bit later today.
0: Thank you for putting some logic into these numbers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a confusing, the the pathophysiology is confusing enough, we don't need additional confusion from from the names. So yeah, if you take away nothing from the proximal RTA stuff, all I want you to remember is that the job of the proximal tubule is to reabsorb bicarb When that doesn't work, you spill bicarb into the urine and your serum bicarb comes down, leading to an acidosis. So the last thing to remember for a proximal RTA is what clinical picture you're looking for. So usually these patients are having their bicarbs not be super, super low, something in like the 15 to 20 range. Like we mentioned, these patients will typically have a a urine pH That is able to be acidified to less than 5.5 as long as they're not receiving bicarbonate supplementation. And finally, when you lose bicarb in the urine, remember, bicarb has a negative charge to it. It's going to pull positive charge elements along with it. And so, one of those major positive charged elements is potassium. So, if you lose bicarb in the urine, you're going to lose potassium along with it. And this is in addition to delivering a bunch of extra sodium to the distal part of the kidney, where again, it gets exchanged for potassium. So really, you have two reasons for these patients to develop hypokalemia. So the typical uh, clinical scenario for these patients are going to be someone who took some type of medication, whether it be acetazolamide or topiramide, they developed an acidosis, their urine pH can still be acidified, and they have hypokalemia. So that sort of constellation of signs and symptoms would point you towards a proximal RTA. This is in comparison to a distal RTA. Distal RTAs are more of a severe form of RTA. So let's first talk about what the distal part of the kidney does in normal physiology. Normally, the distal part of the kidney is responsible for two things in terms of acid base. One, it takes the acid or the hydrogen from the tubule and puts it into the urine, which is why it can acidify the urine. And two, every single time you make a hydrogen, remember through carbonic anhydrase, you take water and CO2 and you convert it to hydrogen and bicarb. So every time you put a hydrogen into the urine you have a bicarb left over which goes back into the blood. So this distal part of the kidney is responsible for acidifying the urine with hydrogen and production of new bicarb, which then goes into circulation. So you can see why a patient who has a problem with their distal tubules is going to have a twofold problem in terms of their acid base. They can't get rid of acid, and they can't make more bicarb. This is the main reason why distal RTAs can be a lot more severe than proximal RTAs. So what happens? So in order to figure out, again, what happens in these distal RTAs, the important thing is to figure out how does the tubule put that hydrogen into the urine. It happens in two ways. One is you have a potassium hydrogen exchanger, meaning you pick a potassium up from the urine and in exchange for picking up that positive charge, you put another positive charge, the hydrogen, into the urine. And two, you have a ATPase that its only job is to pick up hydrogen from inside the cell and put it into the urine. So you essentially have two hydrogen transporters, one that's coupled with potassium, one that's hydrogen alone. So anything that messes up these transporters will lead to an RTA. For example, let's say you have all this hydrogen that you've put into the urine. What if all of that hydrogen now finds a way to seep back into the cell? That would prevent you from putting hydrogens into the urine. That hydrogen would come back into the cell Bind with that bicarb that you were trying to put into the blood, hence prevent you from generating new bicarb. This is exactly how something like amphotericin works. So, if you think of amphotericin, amphotericin B, it's antifungal medication, and its job is to put holes into the cell wall of the fungi, preventing them from being able to regulate their cell membranes. So, that same physiology of putting a pore happens in the kidney. So, if you put a pore into the wall of the tubule, all that hydrogen you were pumping into the urine, guess what? It's going to seep right back into the tubular cell, preventing you from acidifying your urine, preventing you from making more bicarb. Hence, as- amphotericin is one of the sort of well-tested forms of an RTA, especially the, the distal RTA. Other diseases that can cause distal RTA problems are things that are infiltrative diseases like Sroger's. Um, you can have inflammatory diseases like lupus. You can have drug-induced, like we said, amphotericin and lithium that causes issues with the with the distal tubule. So in these patients, like we said, if you can't put hydrogens into the urine, you can't acidify the urine. These are the patients that no matter what you try, you would never be able to acidify their urine. So that's sort of the differentiating fact between these guys in the proximal RTAs is a proximal RTA, they can still acidify their urine as long as their bicarb is under their threshold of, of being able to reabsorb approximately. A distal RTA patient, no matter what you do, you would never be able to acidify their urine. So although you're not tested on this very frequently, there is one way that you can confirm this diagnosis, and that's through essentially, it's a a stress test of the distal tubule. What you do is you give these patients a combination of a loop diuretic and fludrocortisone. So if you give these patients a loop diuretic, you're gonna deliver a lot more sodium to that distal part of the kidney. That distal part of the kidney is gonna pick up that sodium, leave behind a negative charge from the chloride. That negative charge should then stimulate Pulling in of other positive ions, right, like potassium and hydrogen, and then you couple that with fludrocortisone, which again increases the sodium reabsorption. By doing that, you're basically forcing the distal part of the kidney to dump hydrogen into the urine to make it acidic. So, in a normal individual, if you did this loop diuretic and fludrocortisone, their urine pH should become very acidic. In a person with a distal RTA, they wouldn't be able to do that. So, despite giving them a loop diuretic and fludrocortisone, they would still have a fairly alkaline pH. Okay, so let's contrast that really quickly to the proximal RTA, right? So in a proximal RTA, you have an issue with reabsorbing bicarb. In a distal RTA, you have an issue with putting acid into the urine and making new bicarb to put into the blood. When you're looking at a clinical scenario for these patients, the really differentiating point between these two is going to be the urine pH because in the proximal uh, proximal RTA mm-hmm. patients, they can acidify their urine less than 5.5, in a distal RTA, they cannot because they have that inability to put that hydrogen into the urine. One other thing that happens in both of these guys, we already sort of mentioned it for the proximal tubule, was a low potassium. So why does the hypokalemia happen in a distal RTA? Well, if you think back to the first thing I had said, there's two ways for the distal kidney to put hydrogen into the urine. One is a direct pump, which pumps hydrogen from the cell into the urine. The other is via an exchanger where it exchanges it with potassium. So if you can't pick up that potassium to put in that hydrogen, that potassium ends up coming out in your urine. So you end up having a a mechanism for inability to reabsorb and reclaim that potassium. So you end up having urinary potassium wasting. So in both scenarios, patients are acidic. In both scenarios, patients are hypokalemic. But in the proximal tubule, they still have the ability to acidify their urine. In the distal RTA, they don't have that ability. And so no matter what you do, including the the flutter challenge test, their urine pH will remain above 5.5.
0: In your experience, having seen patients with this, what are their usually first presenting symptoms and how do you differentiate between the two? I know you said the hypokalemia and acidemia are the two important factors, but symptomatically, how do they present usually?
1: Yeah, so both of them are going to present with some degree of acidosis. And we'll talk about that in a second in terms of the effects of that. Proximal RTs, like we mentioned, are usually not as severe. You're thinking bicarbs of 15, 16, maybe 18. Distal RTAs are the severe form. These patients can come in with pH or with serum bicarbs of 8, 9 single-digit bicarb levels. So in the acute setting, meaning you just took the acetazolamide or you just took the amphotericin, you're not going to see much in terms of side effects. Where the side effects are going to come is when you start comparing or when the effects of the high acidosis start to compound. For example, your body has three major buffers for handling the acidosis. One is very short-term. You bind it to something like bicarb or you bind it to something like albumin, which can buffer out some of that acid. Second is you start to put this acid in places, meaning you can put it into the bone. you have bone breakdown. You put it into the muscle. You'll have muscle breakdown. Where that becomes an issue is, let's say you're breaking down tons of bone. What happens to your calcium? Your Calcium goes up. Calcium goes up. It goes into your urine. Now your urine is alkaline. We'll talk about stones a different day. But you're basically setting up a scenario for you to be forming calcium phosphate stones. In terms of muscle, if you leave these patients acidotic for a long period of time, they're going to have muscle aches. They're going to have muscle breakdown. Um, And so a lot of the side effects from the actual RTAs aren't a direct result of the RTA itself. It's much more of the rta induced acidosis. So these patients are are clinically a bit more difficult because they're going to have to deal with their history a lot more. Were they taking medications like a or amphotericin or lithium? And a lot of lab work data is going to be pointing you towards an RTA more so than specific symptomatic results or symptomatic uh, complaints. So we've talked about the proximal RTA. we talked about a distal RTA. The most common form of an RTA is actually the hyperclimic RTA or type 4 RTA. In these patients, essentially the the signifying event is that these, unlike the other two, these patients typically have high serum potassium levels. So why does that happen? The main physiology behind this has to do with hypoaldosteronism. In other words, low serum aldosterone levels. So any scenario where you have a low serum aldosterone level can lead to a type 4 RTA. So why is that the case? Aldosterone is responsible for stimulating that insertion of those ENAC channels, those sodium channels into that distal part of the kidney. That picks up the sodium and leaves behind a negative charge of chloride. That negative charge of chloride is what is the driving force for you putting potassium into the urine and then hence the hydrogen into the urine. So if you don't have enough aldosterone around, you won't have enough ENAC channels around. You don't have enough ENAC channels around. You won't be able to pick up enough sodium. All that sodium remains in the lumen with a positive charge and it actually repels the potassium from coming out and the hydrogen from coming out. So what leads to low potassium or low aldosterone states? One of the most common scenarios is volume overload. So if you think of someone who's just slightly volume overloaded, not to the point where they're in heart failure, but just slightly hypertensive, slightly volume overloaded, that whole scenario of being volume overloaded is going to turn off your RAS system, right? So if your kidneys are sensing that there's tons of volume around, they have no need to be stimulating RAS. And so if RAS is shut down, you shut down angiotensin 2, you shut down aldosterone. So the very common scenario here is type 2 diabetics. Type 2 diabetics, very slightly volume overloaded, low renin, low aldosterone, low aldosterone then leads to inability for you to get rid of that potassium. That hyperkalemia then can lead to your acidosis in two ways. One is, I'm not going to go through all the physiology behind it, but high potassium prevents ammonium production in the kidney. And ammonium production, although we didn't talk about it explicitly in this podcast, helps remove acid into the urine, or helps remove acid by putting it into the urine. And so in the states of high potassium, you can't get rid of as much acid as you would otherwise. And two, like we mentioned earlier, one of the ways that distal RTAs work is they pick up potassium to to put the hydrogen into the urine. Well, if you can't get rid of the potassium, that's half of your battle in terms of trying to the hydrogen into the urine. And so you can lead to a sort of slight overlap between a, between a distal RTA and a, a hyperkalemic RTA. So what are all the scenarios where you have low aldosterone? One is, like we said, diabetics. Two is patients who are on medications who explicitly try to block the ENAC pathogenesis, something like spironolactone or amylaride. And three, to a lesser extent, things like ACE inhibitors and ARBs. If you shut down the RAS system and someone who is otherwise having a really high RAS response you're going to end up having less aldosterone hanging around. So the real differentiating pack between the hyperkalemic RTAs and the other two is just the potassium. So if you see a patient who's got the clinical picture of an acidosis, they look like they have an RTA, and they're hyperkalemic, it's, their question is sort of pointing you towards a type 4 RTA, hyperkalemic RTA. And your goal here should be, do they have diabetes? Are there any medications that could be blocking that ENAC pathway? As compared to the other two where you're typically going to be seeing acidosis, hypokalemia in both of those scenarios. And then the between proximal and distal, you're looking at the urine pH.
0: Thank you so much, Deep. And for everybody listening, I just want you to know that he did with no notes, minimal notes. And this is why nephrologists are some of the smartest doctors we have. So we'll be back with more renal episodes in a little bit. But for the time being, thank you everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we will see you next time.